0: Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We're proud to say that today's episode is brought to you by JustWorks. JustWorks helps businesses take care of their benefits, healthcare, payroll, and HR. It's super simple and powerful. We use it and we love it. And this podcast really is way more than just Jerry. So we wanted to take this opportunity to introduce you to more of our team and hear their experience in using JustWorks.
1: I'm Allie Schultz, and I am the COO of Reboot. JustWorks makes my life insanely easy. It's every HR solution I have ever wanted in one place, including my benefits, and I don't have to think about HR things at all.
0: And how does your experience with JustWorks compare to other providers that you may have used in the past?
1: I've tried two of the largest HR solutions in the market, and um, the time that it has taken out of my life to use both of those programs is maddening to me. Um, back then, um, which was only just a couple of years ago, I remember thinking to myself, this really doesn't need to be as complicated as it is. And I was hoping that someone would create what JustWorks has created. I feel like it is going to give life and uh, a newfound sense of joy and freedom to HR professionals around the globe.
0: Well, you hear how much Allie loves JustWorks and a happy alley is a happy reboot. If you're ready to grow your business and not your busy work, head over to reboot.io JustWorks. You'll find out more about how we use JustWorks and how it could work for you. That's reboot.io JustWorks. Suppose what you fear could be trapped and held in Paris. Then you would have the courage to go everywhere in the world all the directions of the compass open to you except the degrees east or west of true north that lead to paris still you wouldn't dare to put your toes smack dab on the city limit line and you're not really willing to stand on a mountainside miles away and watch the paris lights come up at night and just to be on the safe side you decide to stay completely out of france but then danger seems too close even to those boundaries and you feel the timid part of you covering the whole globe again. You need the kind of friend who learns your secret and says, See Paris first. And that poem is called See Paris First by M. Truman Cooper. Fear is a familiar and powerful co-founder in startups. We do our best to quiet it, shut it down, deny it. But perhaps our biggest struggle with it is simply acknowledging it. What if you not only acknowledged your fear, but leaned into it? What if you let go of your own hope to control things and go back to building and leading from a place of love? Jules Pierre, co founder and CEO of the product launch platform, The Gromit, has done just that for her growing team of 55 employees. In this conversation, Jules and Jerry discuss what it was like to embrace the grit of her Detroit working class upbringing face head-on the fears of being a non-prototypical entrepreneur and building a new kind of company in one of the scariest economic times in recent memory. Through it all, Jules has been able to move forward with courage to build an organization where people can feel loved and do great work in the process. Hi,
2: Jules. It's really great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Can you take a little bit of time and tell us a little bit about yourself and the company? Uh, it's called The Gromit, right?
3: Right. I'm the co-founder and CEO of The Gromit. It's my third startup, first to found. My background is I'm an industrial designer, and I worked in a couple startups and a bunch of big brands, and I saw something happening that just kind of made me mad, which was the best products did not win, even when I worked in big brands, Hmm. and I wanted to fix that, so... Fast forward to 2008, the Gromit was born. So we've been launching products, one a day, uh, ever since then and built a pretty massive community that um, really is the strength behind what we do. And we've launched some products that now are household names like Fitbit and SodaStream and your startup listeners all probably have idea paint on their Mm -hmm, walls. mm -hmm. Um, Right now, we're looking at a panoply of Internet of Things you know, really cool things that are harnessing data with physical products. So we're always kind of discovering the future.
2: I I love that. I'm, 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 I was a user of Fitbit. This is sort of shout out to our friends at Fitbit because, uh, using Fitbit, it prompted me to lose the last 30 pounds that I wanted to lose.
3: Congrats. Yeah.
2: And so, uh, I was, I'm a big fan of, you know, a lot of the products that you've already talked about. I also, um, I have to tell you, I'm a fan of something else, which is this notion of citizen commerce.
3: Oh yeah, yeah.
2: Tell me, tell me what that means, yeah.
3: Well, it was a term born in my kitchen one day. I had been wandering around for about a year trying to think of a phrase, on and off, that captured the movement that I thought was forming, mm. which is bigger than our own business. Mm. And I was watching citizen journalism in particular, mm-hmm. uh, where people really, like yourself, mm-hmm. are shaping the media, forming the media. Um, and I thought, you know, our business, which was already operational at that point, was taking this role of making markets for worthy companies and products, people, people whose values we could align with. Um, so those two words kind of came together and I trademarked them, citizen commerce. And um, for the average person, I think of it, it very simply that um, a lot of our budget is fixed, but there's probably about 10% we can really play with and devote those dollars almost like votes against um, seeing, seeing the change we want or the companies we want to succeed. And even though I'm an industrial designer, ultimately, I realized that business was my true craft and Business is the most powerful entity on earth. It trumps nonprofits, governments, educational institutions. So we need to expect more from business and we can. And uh, we can do that very simply by supporting the companies that represent what we want the world to be.
2: Uh, I, I it, it's beautiful. Uh, you know, uh, I recently did a uh, a talk here in Boulder for Boulder Startup Week, and I was joined on stage. You're but
3: in Boulder. I was just there. I
2: am in Boulder. I am I in was Boulder.
3: Just there, I was spoke five times at the World Affairs Council. Oh,
2: fantastic! Fantastic. CWA, well, Council yes. World
3: Affairs. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I I actually uh, serve as the chair of the board of trustees at Naropa. University, the Buddhist university here in town. Ah. And so we had our board meeting and graduation uh, this past week, and then um, I did the uh, keynote uh, for Boulder Startup Week. And I was joined by Matt Stinchcombe, who was one of the early employees at Etsy. Yeah. And, and uh, he's, he spoke a lot about um, the beautiful book uh, by Charles Eisenstadt, which is A More Beautiful World Our Heart Knows Is Possible and it's really about imagining that world that is possible and I, and i loved your notion that because i share the same belief that business can be a force for good you know as i said the other day you know for our 150 200 years of the industrial revolution the basic premise has been to take raw material and turn it into wealth for a few individuals and what if we turn this engine uh, into something else, into something, you know. And this is something we try to focus on at reboot. What if businesses were an opportunity for the full self-actualization of the people who participate? Mm. Mm. What if um, the 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 things we try to bring forth into the world are generative to the world, and not you know taking from the world, not consumptive of the world.
1: You
3: sound like the founder of Stonyfield Farm. Have you read any of his stuff?
2: I haven't, but I love their yogurt.
3: (laughs) Uh, It's the same idea that so much of businesses take from the planet, taking from competitors, taking from employees. Mm -hmm. I mean, people don't use those words, but competing, Mm -hmm. you know, in its essence has some of that flavor. Mm -hmm. And he says the exact same thing. Why couldn't business be additive? Why Mm -hmm. does it always have to be subtractive.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's mm-hmm. very much how he's built the business. And mm. then there's a sidebar to that that I read in something more recently. Um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have been reading or have read Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And the most you know, kind of glistening gem I picked up from that book was something he was taught, which was one of his mentors said to him, no matter what the commercial success of a company or, or failure, it's still an end in itself to build a good company. I stood in front of my team recently and talked about that because at the end of the day, at least in my life and many of our lives, it's where we form some of our most meaningful relationships, our sense of self, our capabilities, possibilities, where we learn, where we spend all our time, And of course, every company wants to succeed on all the conventional dimensions. But this was fresh thinking to me, and it kind of affirmed things that I do all the time to build a good company. And I I actually don't do it just to be competitive, just to make sure we have the best team. I do it because there's a joy in it, right, that... um, I'm responsible for people's lives I'm CEO of a company I'm responsible for an aspect of their lives and I take that I take that as a it it is a responsibility but it's not heavy it's a joy I can influence these people we can influence each other and so we spend in this company a lot of time making that time we spend together you know ultimately building a good company whether or not the grommet is the one that endures and wins if you will we already did because i've formed we've formed together our lives in a way that i think is healthy
2: i i love i love where you're you're going with this because what i take from what you're saying is that you've defined success in a much broader way than the conventional view yeah and that success has more to do with in some ways these are my words not yours obviously but you know there's a question i'll often put to a client and which is what kind of company do you want to work for? Yeah. Or more specifically, what kind of company would you like your child to come to work for?
3: Yeah, this is the key. I have, mm. I have three sons, mm. and they're all college to entering the workforce age. And that's why I know this. You know, that's why I know this is important.
2: What do you mean? Say more
3: because um well i'll back up a little bit my career has tracked my children's lives in an interesting way i worked when i worked for big companies i worked for meg whitman and i first worked for her at keds shoe company and then another shoe company Striderite, and then play school the toys the toy company and my kids were growing up through the product set during that time and we also sold to mothers and parents so that that was super useful. I just was in the mix, in the flow always mm-hmm. of what wow. we were trying to do and succeed at. I was always ahead of the pack. Mm-hmm. I had to be just to live my life. Mm-hmm. And then this company, fast forward to today, we started about uh, we started in 2008. And um, our employee set is very diverse age-wise, but there's a huge cohort of people who are a little bit older than my kids or in my kids' age range. And so I am very much in the flow of knowing what it's like to be at that stage of life. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not from within their shoes, but of close observer and carer, you mm-hmm. know, of mm-hmm. this. And so it really informs me as a leader to think... I don't think of, my, of the employees, the team, as, as children. Don't, don't misread this. It's just, I kind of know what the world's like right now for this age group. And I know what it was like for my age group, and I employ people in my age group too. And what mm-hmm. we've come through... And maybe I have a gap in the middle, you know, mm-hmm. maybe I'm not so good with the
1: people who are forty or whatever. <laughs>
3: but um I've got a couple good barb ends of the barbell covered, um, mm-hmm. in terms of well what would it be like, you know, to work here? Mm-hmm. What what should it be like? And the other thing that informs that though, which is kinda of left field I think, is that I grew up um in Detroit. My dad was an auto worker, a tool maker. My mom was a homemaker, bank teller before that and there were zero professional role models nobody in my family had even been to college and i've come to realize that that's actually a gift because my parents only had one expectation which is basically don't go to jail uh, if you <laughs> boil it down right <laughs> like, you know c- carry your weight but there was more nuance there were people of high principle and really solid character And so I had zero professional uh, expectations or, um, you know, nothing that I had to sort of meet or surpass, but I had this really high bar personally that I had to be, you know, self-sufficient, solid citizen whose, um, you know, eulogy would be one I'd be proud of. Like, and... That informs me as a leader in business quite a bit. Like, I, I don't feel that pressure. I might feel to match up to, you know, something my mother or father achieved. Mm-hmm. My brother, my sister, my aunts or my uncles is none of that for me. But I've got this huge sort of sense of carrying, um, carrying that character into this business. Um, you know, that they, my parents are both deceased, but would they be proud of that, you mm. know? And I think there's, I, I dated a boy in college who was, um, came from a pretty wealthy family. And I remember him saying to me, you working class, class people, you're so much happier. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of offensive, but.
2: He well, But, 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 but there's a funny, sweet observation, even in its offense. Tell me more yeah. about it. Because I, 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 my father was a proofreader and worked in a, in a, for a printing company. And for the same printing company they started working for in high school. And my mother did not get a job until the 1970s when my father lost his job and was unemployed for six years. And, and had to fold the laundry for the first time in his life and experience that disruption and change and so i get that working class background um tell me tell tell me what 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 it yeah what did it mean you're not really
3: you're not really chasing anything um or much in that background there's there is a survival element which makes you know maslow's what hierarchy fairly simple for you um but you know, just sort of taking care of your children in everyday life is success, right? You don't... And you can take... Your work often as visible. You can take pride in that. It's not mysterious. Um, success is not abstract. And it's not conventional. It's not what, you know, you and I think about when we talk about startups, particularly, but... Um, there... That there was that sort of sense of, and on my entire street, I was just talking to somebody about it yesterday, that, you know, the street full of, you know, those green Monopoly houses? Yes. Was, they were all separated by the width of a driveway, there were 20 on each side, there were train tracks at the end, and the diesel plant beyond the train tracks, like, and I could name every house, every person in there, and I believe we would probably have more commonality in our values Than what I ultimately probably found in my suburban, you know, upper class, middle class street, a a lot more commonality. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a there's kind of a a contentment or comfort in that that um, is a gift.
2: It sounds like that, too, really informs your leadership. Is that right?
3: Yeah. You know, (laughs) well, I, I did go to some pretty rough public schools, and so my most entrepreneurial thing I did was I sent myself to boarding school. I actually kind of snuck behind my parents back and got applied to a school, ultimately. Obviously, mm-hmm. they had to get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were supportive to a point. Their point, the limit they would hit was, if you ever you know, become one of those people or you become too big for your britches, we're pulling you out of there. And... Um, So, when I I love when I have, say, like an uncle or aunt visit here and I can walk them around and introduce them to everybody in Mm -hmm. my company. I'm proud of both sides. I'm proud of the employees. I'm proud of the family I came from. But I want them to see in the people here and their response to both me and the company something they can recognize Mm -hmm. from that background. Like each person here is known, Mm -hmm. is valued is secure in themselves, you know, all those things. So, you know, that doesn't take a Ph.D. to recognize.
2: Or an MBA.
3: Or an MBA. No. <laughs> oh, you outed me. <laughs> what do you mean? I never um, got lead with that. I don't tell people I went to Harvard.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm hearing is that there is this profound sense of connectedness to, and I'm going to use a Buddhist term, the ground, the ground of life, you know, that uh, is uh, a powerful part of the way you lead. And uh, I'm really resonating with our with the values. I mean, you spoke of your three children, I have three children, one entering college, the other two uh, beyond college now, and, when I think about some of the things that we, we talk about, I often tell this little story. My daughter, Emma, graduated uh, last year and began teaching for Teach for America at a charter school in East Nashville. And she encountered some very profound poverty, really, for the first time in her life. She knew it uh, conceptually, and she was certainly has a consciousness about it. But to, to, to deal with children... Who are hungry every day it was just a different experience for her. And of course, this past summer, Ferguson exploded and Michael Brown was shot. And I remember her calling me and saying to me, Dad, you know, how do I prevent my kids from growing up to being Michael Brown? And uh, the words of a good friend of mine, Parker Palmer, came to mind, and we watched a video of his about standing in the tragic gap between the world that we imagine is possible and the world that is, Mm -hmm. and how we have to stand in that place, right? And then later, as the summer progressed, we talked about her experience at her school, and she told me a story that her principal, who's a young man himself, had discovered that she likes these green juices, you know, the fresh juices and all this, and... So she started finding green juices on her desk every morning. Mm. And what I often say is "I I want to help create companies where people with an open heart like my daughter has and a consciousness about the world are met by leaders who put a green juice on their desk.
3: Yeah. That's really good. That resonates for me. Does it? It's as simple as that. He doesn't have to spend any time on it and he's not even there physically um but he's saying you matter i know i know a little bit about you and a little bit about i'm going to act on
2: yeah and i see you as you yeah not as a means to the end
3: yeah yeah right?
2: but as as part of a part of a, a community of people who kind of gather together with some sort of purpose in this case in the gramet it's perhaps citizen commerce, perhaps it's creating a more beautiful world that your heart knows is possible. Perhaps it's about, you know, as one camper who came to one of our boot camps said, the full actualization of everybody who comes to work in that Maslow hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, if you see me being excited right now, it's, it's because <laughs> this is the thing that gets my juices flowing. <laughs> right. It's really imagining work not as a dreadful obligation that perhaps your father, the toolmaker, or my father, the proofreader, or your mother, the bank teller, or my mother, the homemaker felt. But work is a means to, the, to, to, to creating something more in ourselves.
3: Yeah. And by the way, it's, um, I mean, your startup audience is always in a battle for survival and a, you know, a race against time. And I actually think this is a a way to help with that. And so if you, if you, you can't, you can't be this way unless you mean it. So you can't fake it. Right. But if you mean it, it's actually a really great way to make sure you have the best team. It's kind of simple, but we can always recruit the best people. We are in Boston and we can always recruit the best people. This kind of, um, you know the company's done well, so it's not independent of the company, but the reputation we have for this for the the community or the environment we've created um, i have this I have this this thing that I translated to the whole team when we were only ten people we were the, about that size for a long time, four years, and it was real survival mode it was tough times it was when the economy collapsed, capital was hard to get, and we were not getting it. And so we did the work of about 40 people, 10 people. And how do you get people to do that for four years? There is some cycling in and out. People did fatigue, um, but people were mainly steady. And one of the things that I did was, okay, I can't pay these people what they deserve. I can't give them, you know, visible promotional opportunities. I, I can't even make this company famous, so their resume is great, you know. There's a lot I can't do, but what can I do? Um, I can give them great work and stretch them beyond things that they'd get in other companies, but then I would do kind of this softer side of things, which is I pretty much spent a big part of my weekend thinking, okay, if I showed up in the morning and there were flowers outside the door or it was somebody's birthday and it was recognized or um, there was a speaker coming in on Wednesday who was going to talk about something pretty cool You mentioned conscious capitalism, I think, in in so many words. We had the man who wrote that book come in. Those kind of things, like if I had a special guest, I never let them not talk to the whole team. They had to talk not just to me. I would do all these things that really didn't – they cost time, not a lot of money, um, a, a big part of my weekend. And then when the company started growing, that wasn't scalable for me to literally buy the snacks for every single person and know what they liked. And all that. Um, so I created this structure um, that I call kind of like it's like our vaccination against growth or for growth, I guess. Like I want everybody in the company to hold a piece of our culture that we agree matters. Our piece of it's more behaviors. Our behaviors. So um, everybody's a VP of something. Remember what your job is, you have a second job. VP of something. I'm VP of Garden. Like we moved to a space. You mentioned being grounded. It's a ground floor old factory building and it had a strip of weeds along the sidewalk and I hated that when we were moving in. So I put in a garden, you know, very little urban garden, but that's my VP job. I maintain that garden and other people have um, welcoming new employees. Other people have lunch and learns. Other people, I have a VP of carpets, believe it or not, a ground floor office. The carpets get in Boston, get crummy. So I think it's a little like the New York subways. If the carpets are deteriorating, other things start to, you know, neglect. So get neglected. So we each own a piece. There's a kitchen nag. That's a crummy job. So we only do that for a month. Um, But the point is, and I am very overt with this, you know, we don't do jobs we don't think are important. You know, like we, we, we change the jobs if they start to become obsolete, but we don't have an HR. We have 55 people. We don't have any HR or any office manager. And it's really inefficient not to have those two things eventually we will i value those functions but right now we're holding on to know we're all this and we're all maintaining a piece of this culture this behaviors this way of being so that when we go from 55 to you know 100 to 200 you'll know when somebody is um, not really behaving the way we kind of want it to be because you held that job or you held that you created that job or you Watch someone else do it, and um, and and that—that's kind of my only thing I can think of to sort of inoculate the company to hang on to those things is to distribute the responsibility.
2: I I, I am so impressed with what you just said. <laughs> I mean, Thank it you. it is beautiful. It is, um, you know, and we live in a culture that lionizes a kind of, what I believe is a kind of false aggression that's actually a cover for fear. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is, is a you know, a, a, an incredibly strong leader who I have to imagine dealt with her fears, especially when the economy collapsed. And rather than covering those fears with aggression, reached in, and found what I think is the most powerful leadership tool available. Love, faith, care, culture, and invested in those things. And going back to our first conversation about success, from my lips to God's ears, the grommet Grows and expands and sustains itself. But if that doesn't come true, I can almost guarantee that the people who have worked f- with you, because I wouldn't even say for you, with you, can walk away knowing that they had one heck of a ride. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, I, I can't, the audio of this will be the only thing there, but I will give you a, a deep bow. <laughs> because, and that's a tradition that we do at Naropa, but it's it's. Oh,
3: thank you. That's that's special. Yeah,
2: it's it's powerful. So let let me let me go back to that for a moment, if if we may. Was I right in saying that you had to confront your fears in order to to to, to do what you're talking about? To reach into the strength. I imagine there were times when it was scary. Two thousand and
3: eight, two thousand and nine? It wasn't it was ever not never not scary for a long time. It's still not I think anxiety is a big part of this role, you know, Mm. founding a company anyway. So I get more nervous when I'm not anxious Mm. than I am, Mm. oddly enough. And that's a little bit of a learned habit from um, my childhood as well. I'm sorry I keep going back to that, but I know it matters.
2: It's what I do.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I know. You have superpowers in here. But I learned, like, when I had to go to the – I told you I went to boarding school and it was a shocking experience. It was – that was the most – scary thing i've ever done and every day i was nauseous and had to show up in a class like say algebra two when i'd never had algebra (laughs) one you know so i i survived basically i learned like and this is an entrepreneurial trait that anybody can look in their own life and find like okay when did you do that thing that was harder than the thing you could have done and you prevailed or at least survived and you kind of like you build up this little internal bank account of confidence in yourself so I was building that bank up account up from a really young age, um, by, and I learned this habit of, um, seeking the scary experiences, not risk-taking for risk-taking sake, but, you know, knowing I, I would grow or I, you know, I should, I, the fear would not, a re, not a reason not to do something at least, you know, mm-hmm. that it was, it was just part of the texture of an experience. It wasn't, the focal point it couldn't it, it shouldn't be the focal point for me but if it was absent then i would worry a little mm-hmm. bit you know that i wasn't pushing myself that you weren't it, on that healthy. growth edge growth edge right mm-hmm. so but what was hard about this one there you know each one has different fears mm-hmm. um different things i'm facing mm-hmm. being a parent scary too those are different fears I, I think
2: it's a one of the most profound fears i've ever had But go ahead. I'm sorry. It matters
3: too much. Yeah. And anyway, but this one, what was scary was that um, I didn't see the economy, you know, the crash coming, and our business had two big problems then. One was the capital markets were closed for the most part, and particularly closed to me on two counts. One was the business itself was. It is a very happy and optimistic business. We launch products, you know, the things coming out of Kickstarter and Indiegogo that need to go from, you know, nobody knows you to a business and makers and it's it's such a positive business and these times were so, you know, doomsday and everybody just wanted us to be Groupon or a daily deal site or just didn't. Believe that there would be new products and that people would care about the future ever again. You remember, it was profoundly scary, negative, pervasive everywhere. And here we are like, no, people are creating things and they're wonderful and somebody will buy them someday again. Mm. This will happen again. Mm. It will happen today even. We're going to launch one today. Mm. And um, that was really out of sync. We were so contrarian, not deliberately. It just happened Mm. to us that we Mm. were contrarian. That made it hard to fund the business. We were way ahead of our time, basically, Mm -hmm. and out of time, out of sync. And then when the capital markets closed, um, being a first-time founder, I've worked in two startups, but I didn't found one. I don't look like a typical, you know, pattern recognition founder. And um, what I was describing, I'm sure I didn't do, you know, the absolutely perfect job, was was complex and white space i'm an i'm a designer and i can see the future quite often i have to that's what i was paid to do you know nobody designs a today when you're an industrial designer so it's it's just an it's just a discipline for me to see where behaviors and technologies intersect to create opportunity used to be products now i do it for businesses and that's um that skill set was not something I could create credibility for, that people did not believe I had that. Um, and I felt that was probably because I didn't look like, you know, the person that they think does have that skill set. You and, know, and, just and what do you Age and gender, primarily. Uh, well, first of all, I look like a housewife from Darien, Connecticut.
0: Right?
3: <laughs> you know, like, is that the person on silicon valley right? right is that like the lead protagonist company founder right. will that ever be right. never right,
2: right. so so you were the wrong age the wrong gender
3: the wrong hair color the Rand
2: holocaur color um for the for our listeners your I'm hair blonde. You're, she's blonde <laughs> right and so you know and and there's the darien connecticut look Right. Yeah, I got right.
3: braces uh, right. along the way when I was 29. My teeth look like those like waspy teeth.
2: Right, 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 right,
3: right.
2: They don't know like the, that you're. you're I was I was gonna say I'm a Brooklyn thing, so they don't they don't know the Br- Detroit Brooklyn Oakland you know you know connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: And I didn't I didn't not I didn't know to claim it in the way that I would now
2: tell me you more know. about that because i think i think there's an opportunity here not just as you know as a three-time startup person as a clearly a an experienced and thoughtful and purpose-connected leader there's an opportunity here i'm going to call forth the leader in you even <laughs> more so what what do you mean you didn't know that you should claim it
3: well beginning a business and building a business, whether it's recruiting team members or investors or customers, there the things I used to make fun of, the, the sports and military analogies are actually true for these endeavors. There there is a sense of a battle and a competition that you're gonna face and it's nobody's gonna hand it to you. You're gonna work really hard and fight for every inch of land you you grab and even with the things we talked about this sort of purpose-driven leadership you're still fighting hard even to those things well because you're doing them on top of all the normal things right you know it's a new layer so um so the grit that i developed in my background you know growing up in a tough neighborhood and you know bouncing myself out of there at 14 and Even further back, I was the first girl in Detroit public schools to wear pants to school. I mean, I'm aging myself, but we weren't allowed to wear pants, and it was freezing cold there. One day, I just had had it. Came home at lunch, changed, and next day, a teacher wore pants, and it was over. The whole policy changed. I don't even know why, how.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: So, I was kind of used to, like, sort of saying, this doesn't make sense. This isn't right. I don't accept this. This is not how I want my life to be. I don't want to be a bank teller. Hmm. You know, I, I... read a lot of books when I was a kid and got a lot of big ideas about what one person could do. And so it's as core to me as anything, this sense of you can't tell me no, or you can't tell me that it has to be done that way. Because every single thing I did from the time I was really young was carving a new path. I would not have gotten anywhere if I accepted what was expected of me.
2: So what I'm hearing you do And correct me if I'm not hearing it correctly. What I just heard you do is claim the totality of who you are. Your gender, your experiences, the being the first girl in the Detroit schools to wear pants, the strength, the wit, the grit, the totality of you. And claim that rather than necessarily play by... What one camper once said to me is the startup playbook, right? Because I don't fit the image of what a VC was. I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't get an MBA. Yeah,
3: good point. Right? Such a club. That that oh. degree is 25% of VCs. What profession is dominated by one In little school?
2: school? Right. <laughs> That's and,
3: amazing to me. And,
2: right. And insane, right? I have a completely, you know, analogy, strange background. I don't fit the fit the mold either. And what and and I think we've got two people reaching across Skype, connecting with the whole notion of claim the wholeness of who you are and step into that as a leader. Does that resonate with you?
3: Yeah, yeah. 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 The more most recent pitch I did for investment, I said to the person, Look, I have plenty of credentials, but you can go on LinkedIn and read all those. Let me tell you tell you who i am that's Mm -hmm. what forms this this work and this project and this company and what i do it's that's much more important Uh, that's why honestly that's why really young founders can do really well too because it isn't only experience it's who you are too i happen to have both you know i i have i have a very full play playbook at this point but you know i would that that idea of being the person who sees something and can push through can happen at any age
2: yeah or any gender any or, gender or any race or any any sexual identification yeah or any orientation that it's really not limited to somebody's uh, somebody else's view of what an entrepreneur is
3: yeah but yeah. here you were in PE and um mm-hmm. You had you you had to be the same as anyone anyone else at least as a group the partnership to recognize the patterns of success and reproduce history right I mean yeah. that was the safest thing to do
2: yeah I, so, I, I I used to joke I wasn't very comfortable wearing khakis and blue te- and blue button down shirts and, really and that's what they were I remember m- making my decision to leave J P Morgan which was the firm that I was at after Fred Wilson and I had founded and launched and led Flatiron Partners. And I remember talking to one of my uh, colleagues and a partner, and I said, you know, I just don't feel comfortable here. As, as we were talking before we started recording, I was dealing with my depression. This was 2002. I was 38. I was dealing with the beginnings of what was a profound midlife shift for me. And he said, I, you know, I really regret this. Because, Jerry, you know what you are? You're very comfortable throwing a brick through glass windows. And we've got too many people here as investors who are a little too uncomfortable. Now, it's a kind of violent image, but I know what he was talking about, Mm. which was, I don't mind going against the grain. In fact, that's something I claim. Mm. Right? I was a New York Yankees fan in a neighborhood filled with New York Mets fans. (laughs) Because I kind of liked it. You know, <laughs> you know, and it's ha- kind of how I define myself in that way. So that's part of my heritage, and that's part of my lineage. And and I and I agree with you. I think you and I, I, I imagine we're similarly aged. We mm-hmm. get we get to have to look back and know something that many of the clients I work with who might be in their twenties or early thirties haven't yet experienced. Those things that we're so scared of they're not going to knock us down forever. Yeah. They're not. And if we, and if we respond to them with grace and openness and heart and remembering core purpose, we can grow. Yeah. We can grow. Well, Jules, I can't thank you enough. This has been just a delightful experience. And, you know, I I rarely say something that I'm going to say now, but Talking with you makes me wish again that I was a VC.
1: Really? <laughs>
2: because I, I put money into this company in a heartbeat.
3: <laughs> Thank you. Based
2: on its leadership alone.
3: Based that's on its really leadership. nice of you to say that. It means a lot. Thank you.
0: So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode, from links to books to quotes to images So we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io slash podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, head over to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together.
1: How long till my soul gets